Hello and welcome to the mini lecture on Samuel Johnson. We'll begin with an introduction to the eccentric Dr. Johnson himself before situating both the Dictionary of the English Language and his Rambler essay in their larger historical and literary context. We'll discover that Johnson's work represent both the pinnacle of neoclassicism and the beginning of its decline. Born in 1709 to a bookseller and a supposedly elderly mother, she was 40 when he was born, Johnson was an avid reader from an early age. Though he was dogged by bouts of poverty and depression through his life, Johnson nonetheless achieved great success as an essayist, a stylist, a poet, a novelist and as a moralist. As his biographer James Boswell records, Johnson was also a brilliant and an opinionated conversationalist. For example, he disliked Whigs, Americans and Scots, which means he'd probably be quite unhappy that I'm teaching his work and that you are reading it. He's probably best remembered today for his Dictionary of the English Language, which was the first comprehensive English dictionary. While the Italian and French academies had already produced dictionaries for French and Italian, before Johnson's dictionary there was no standard dictionary of English. It's important to know this because, among other things, Johnson's dictionary is a nation-building project. It's a means of recording, asserting and distributing English language and English culture. Johnson began his dictionary in 1746 and he planned to complete it in three years. In the end, it took him nine years. It may have taken him three times longer than he planned, but it's important we recognise quite how remarkable Johnson's achievement is nonetheless. With only six part-time assistants, Johnson wrote definitions of over 40,000 words and located 114,000 illustrative quotations. In contrast, it took 40 years and 40 writers to complete the French Academy's dictionary, prompting Johnson to quip, Sir, thus it is. This is the proportion. Let me see. 40 times 40 is 1600. As 3 to 1600, so is the proportion of an Englishman to a Frenchman. Johnson's boast here is telling making clear the extent to which the dictionary was a vehicle for asserting national identity as much as for recording the English language. If you've read the sample definitions included in the Norton, you'll see that Johnson buried a few jokes and jibes in his dictionary. Some jokes are pointed at himself. He defines lexicographer as a writer of dictionaries, a harmless drudge. Other jokes are directed elsewhere, so he defines oats as a grain which in England is generally given to horses, but in Scotland supports the people. A definition which, sig which signals Johnson's prejudice against the Scots, though it may also be an in-joke for the enjoyment of his part-time assistants, five of whom were in fact Scottish. While these humorous definitions are among the most famous definitions in the dictionary, they are a tiny minority. Most of Johnson's entries are exemplary dictionary definitions, to the extent that many are still repeated in modern dictionaries. In other words, you may already have read Johnson's work without realising it when you consulted a dictionary. The quality of Johnson's definitions explains the success of his Dictionary of the English Language. 
It not only ran into five editions in his lifetime, but it was the preeminent English dictionary until work began on the Oxford English Dictionary in 1858. And of course, that's the dictionary that I always recommend you consult. At the beginning of this lecture, I suggested that Johnson can be seen as the pinnacle of neoclassicism. And in many ways, the dictionary is an archetypal neoclassical project, being, literally, an attempt to bring order and stability to the English language. The dictionary project is also reliant on those qualities that the neoclassicists borrowed from contemporary scientists. Much as 18th century science aimed to record and classify our world using objective observation and reason, so Johnson's dictionary attempts to record and classify the English language by observing it and collecting samples of its use in the form of its 114,000 illustrative quotations. However, we can also understand the dictionary as a harbinger of the end of neoclassicism. While Johnson initially set out to fix the English language, his experience writing the dictionary convinced him that this was a futile ambition, for reasons that you will explore on the discussion board. Perfect order and stability, so beloved of neoclassicism, are, it turns out, impossible when it comes to language. Our second work by Johnson is his essay on fiction, which was published in his periodical The Rambler. Johnson started this periodical in 1750, and he wrote it almost all himself. He began it partly for money, because the £1,575 that he was paid for the dictionary didn't cover his living expenses and the wages of his assistants. But he also began it partly as a break from working on the dictionary. So here we can think of Johnson as a poor guy just looking for a little bit of respite. Um, clearly he needed Netflix in his life. Like the dictionary, we can see both the influence of neoclassicism in this essay and the waning of the movement. On the one hand, Johnson recognises the emergence of a new kind of fiction, realist fiction, which relies on accurate observation of the living world, as Johnson puts it. In other words, like neoclassicism and 18th century science, this seems a new genre that values objectivity. But on the other hand, Johnson worries that this new kind of fiction will bring instability and disorder. Too faithful depiction of the real world will result in writers depicting the worst aspects of life, which Johnson says is so often discoloured by passion or deformed by wickedness. Writers might also be tempted to mingle good and bad qualities in their principal personages, that is, to depict characters who are neither wholly good or wholly bad, and this moral complexity might confuse readers, especially the young. Johnson's solution is typically neoclassical. He outlines rules or principles that writers of fiction should follow. But like Johnson's initial belief that his dictionary can prevent language change, Johnson's attempt to impose rules on the writers of fiction to ensure that novels are always morally instructive is doomed. By the 1760s, the Gothic novel begins to emerge, a genre that was less interested in teaching readers right from wrong than in terrifying them by presenting events and realities that seem to break all of nature's rules. We're going to discuss both of Johnson's works on the discussion board this week, thinking about Johnson's intentions, his ambitions for the English language and for fiction, 
and thinking a little bit also about the applicability of his ideas to our own current situation and our own current art and literature. Hello and welcome to the mini lecture on Thomas Gray and his poems Ode and the Death of a Favourite Cat and Elegy Written in a Country Churchyard. Gray is an important writer for us because he can be understood as a transitional figure between neoclassicism and romanticism, a transition that's illustrated in some ways by the head-spinning shift in tone between these two poems. Gray's work illustrates the fundamentally different attitudes to poetry that emerge in the mid-18th century. So while some continue to assert the neoclassical belief that the meaning of poetry should be as clear as the meaning of prose, Others, like Gray, assert that the effect of poetry is enhanced if its actual meaning is obscure. As Gray put it, the language of the age is never the language of poetry. This may seem a surprising distinction to you, given that you probably find Gray's poetry easier to read than Pope's. But we can explain that difference once we recognise the continuity between Gray's poetry and Romanticism, the literary movement whose assumptions still influence 21st century understandings of poetry. Born in 1716, Gray had a difficult childhood. He was one of 12 children, but he was the only one to survive infancy. He attended Eton College from the age of eight, which is England's poshest private school. So it's the school that Prince Harry and Prince William went to, for example. At Eton, Gray made three very close friends, including Richard West and Horace Walpole. Walpole, incidentally, was the son of the Prime Minister Robert Walpole and the later author of the first Gothic novel in English, The Castle of Otranto. As an adult, Gray was a lonely, reclusive figure. His friend Richard West died in 1742, while his friendship with Walpole was marred by quarrels and periods of estrangement. Unlike this week's other writer, Samuel Johnson, Gray wrote only a very few works and published even less. Despite his relatively small body of work, however, Gray is a significant figure in 18th century poetry. As the two poems we read this week illustrate, we can understand his poetry as a bridge between neoclassicism and romanticism. Ode on the Death of a Favourite Cat was written for Gray's friend Horace Walpole and was based, like Pope's The Rape of a Lock, on a true event. Walpole's cat, Salima, had indeed fallen into a vase full of goldfish and drowned. Indeed, the vase that Walpole's cat drowned in still survives and is held in the archive at Yale University. 20th century critic W.P. Kerr called Ode on the Death of a Favourite Cat one of the hardest and most unfeeling pieces of clever writing. And you can see why. The poem essentially exploits the accidental death of Walpole's cat to write a comic poem. And we can understand this poem as another example of one of neoclassicism's favourite genres, the mock heroic or mock epic, like McFlecknoe and The Rape of the Log, where those poems elevate a middle-class playwright to royalty and an aristocratic woman to a deity, Gray's poem turns a pet cat into a classical nymph, with, Samuel Johnson complained, some violence both to language and to sense. Like Dryden and Pope's poems, Gray's poem produces its humour by using elevated diction and tone, and includes numerous classical references. Even the form of this poem is a joke. Appropriately enough, this poem about a cat is written in what is known as rhyme cooey or tail rhyme. That is short lines which rhyme with each other, separated by groups of longer lines. The insistent humour that this poem derives from the death of a cat often seems cruel to modern readers. 
but as William Blake's illustration indicates, it had great appeal to late 18th century readers. We can also understand this poem as another example of satire, another genre beloved of the neoclassicists, though it does raise the question, what's being satirised? Greedy cats or greedy women, given the poem's relentless gendering of Salima and her transformation into a nymph? Or perhaps the poem is a warning against materialism or an indictment of empire, giving its references to commodities associated with global trade? These are topics we will explore on the discussion board. The tone of the second poem, Elegy Written in a Country Churchyard, is quite different from Ode on the Death of a Favourite Cat. This is an example of a graveyard poem, which is an 18th century invention. Graveyard poems meditate on mortality and immortality and are set, unsurprisingly, in graveyards. Importantly, some critics see this genre as a forerunner of the Gothic, which is important when we consider the ways in which the Gothic, with its emphasis on the unexpected and the inexplicable, challenges neoclassicism's attention to order and stability. We can also recognise Gray's poem as an example of the pastoral elegy, which are poems set in idealised rural landscapes which mourn a person's death. If we compare Gray's elegy to our earlier readings then, we recognise that not only is its tone more sombre and serious than any we've encountered so far, but that we've also left the urban environments of Dryden, Pope, Swift and Montague behind and moved into the English countryside. This is the same geographic shift that we will see in Romanticism. Quite who this poem does mourn is a source of debate. Some critics have suggested it was inspired by the death of Gray's close friend Richard West, but as we'll discuss this week, the poem's elegy seems broader than one individual. As such, it's a poem that still, I think, speaks to us. It asks fundamentally, who will remember us after we die and how will we be remembered? It points to the connections between literacy and legacy. If we leave no writing behind, no traces behind, like the illiterate rural poor, how will we be remembered? And this attention to the poor is also important. As we've discussed, neoclassicism is notable for its elitism and its snobbery. Class is invoked only to sneer at those on the lower social rungs. By contrast, Gray's poem celebrates and commemorates the lives of the poor. Rather than seeing them as less capable than the rich and wealthy, this poem recognises that poverty can prevent the poor from fulfilling their true potential. Much as romantic poetry will share the rural setting of this poem, so it will also share Gray's admiration for and elevation of the lives of the poor. We also see a different version of the poet emerge in this poem. Our poet is no longer embedded in society, Instead, this poet is a solitary figure who seems to belong neither with the rich nor the poor. Instead of offering a satire that seeks to correct the ills of the culture, our poet now offers quiet meditations on life and death and all that outlast superficial social structures. In these shifts, Gray's poem looks forward to and anticipates Romanticism, the literary and cultural movement that we'll be exploring in the coming weeks. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing your response uh, to these two poems. Um, Elegy is generally popular with students. Um, cat lovers in particular often do not like Ode on the Death of a Favourite Cat, so I will be interested in hearing your response.